0: Hello, I'm Amanda Moore, I'm the Director of the Clearinghouse Community. Welcome to the Advocacy Exchange for October 2018. The Advocacy Exchange is our monthly conversation with Advocates Advancing Change. Both the Advocacy Exchange and the Clearinghouse Community are brought to you by the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. Today I have two guests with me and I'd like to introduce them to you in turn. First is Patricia Fraun. Patricia is the Executive Director of the Chicago Area Fair Housing Alliance. Hello, Patricia. Hi. And second is my colleague at the Shriver Center, Kate Walls. Kate is the Director of Housing Justice and the Senior Director of Litigation at the Shriver Center. Hello, Kate. Hi. They are both joining me today from Chicago. They also are the authors of our current article on The Clearinghouse. It's called The Color of Power, How Local Control Over the Siting of Affordable Housing Shapes America. It can be found on The Clearinghouse Community, which is at povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. We're going to talk about this intersection of local power dynamics, affordable housing and racial segregation today. I'd like to go ahead and get started now with Kate and Patricia. Patricia, I want to start with you. Can you explain briefly what it is that you mean by local control over the siting of affordable housing? What kind of local government structure are, are we talking about here?
1: Sure. So in Chicago, um, local control is carried out at the ward level. So we have 50 wards led by aldermen, um, which in turn means 50 decision makers determining what our communities look like. Um, In comparison to other large cities, this is pretty unique. So, for example, New York City has three times as many residents as Chicago and 51 city council members. L.A. has close to four million residents, we have close to three, and they have only 15 city council members. So through the unwritten policy of aldermanic prerogative, aldermen have virtually complete, unchecked control over decision making in their wards. Um, in fact, aldermen themselves have described this power as creating essentially mini fiefdoms throughout the city. And because aldermen have an understandable desire to maintain their political longevity, they are greatly concerned with maintaining the status quo and therefore greatly influenced by the demands of their constituents. Um, so on its face, this doesn't sound problematic. Um, aldermen should listen to their voters, right? Um, but when we really dig in, um, we find that it's uh, hyper-local control serves to be a vehicle for the most powerful constituents, so those with money, those with power, those with election clout, to have a greater say in neighborhood-level decisions. And instead of balancing um, power dynamics, it actually creates imbalances and power and undercuts any ability for citywide planning. And ultimately, it leaves um, lower-income individuals with uh, diluted power in shaping housing uh, decisions that determine where they can live in the city.
0: Thank you um, for the overall explanation. Um, Kate, can can you tell us what this looks like in action? Give us some sort of specific example of how all this would play out.
2: So, the most typical example is as it relates to zoning. Uh, aldermen have uh, an absolute right to downzone so that they're able to take a lot and move it from what may be uh, currently zoned as multifamily residential or for allowing it, to commercial or single-family home. So we see this power, particularly in predominantly white wards in Chicago, being used by the aldermen, and they're very upfront about it. You know, I am doing this to preserve the character of our neighborhood, because the character of our neighborhood would not fit for larger uh, multifamily residential. What we also see is the aldermen, Um, have zoning advisory councils, especially in predominantly white wards, and they are deferring all their zoning decisions and whether or not affordable housing can be built in their wards to constituent groups who make up the zoning advisory councils. And what those constituent groups do is advance their NIMBY interest to either block that affordable housing development or to fundamentally alter it, it may initially be a proposal for family affordable housing. If there's any affordable housing built at all at the back end, once the uh, project is approved, generally it's uh, fewer units of affordable housing, and almost always it will be converted to senior housing, senior affordable housing rather than for families.
0: And so, Patricia, you know the system you describe, the Kate, this, the example you're giving us. What does this do to the demographics of a city? What does the city look like when this kind of local structure is uh, in place?
1: Sure. So in the report, we show that this type of hyperlocal control ultimately allows aldermen, especially in predominantly white communities, um, to block affordable housing developments either preemptively, like Kate described, by making such developments near impossible uh, through land use and zoning decisions and having almost complete control over the approval of housing development. So the aggregate effect has really been the reduction of land area available for multifamily development uh, through downzoning and the resulting concentrations of family affordable housing outside of predominantly white and predominantly low poverty areas. So it actually like shapes what our communities look like and over the last 25 years over half of chicago's wards did not accept even a single multi-family affordable housing unit because of this system that we've created um, this also results in increasing rent rates in certain pockets of the city and it kind of has like a reverberating impact throughout the city as a whole and it ultimately results in the loss of lower income households and predominantly black households and since 1980 in chicago We have lost a full quarter of our black population. So unless we begin to address this issue, we could look, you know, years down the road and have uh, a city that looks drastically different than it does today.
0: Well, I want to remind our viewers that we would love to hear from you. Is this a kind of dynamic that you see in your community or in your city? Um, let us know. You can use the live chat function on YouTube, or you can email me, Amanda Moore, M O O R E, at povertylaw.org. Uh, Patricia, I want to stay with you. So. It seems like this kind of hyperlocal control that you're describing is used primarily in white communities. Do communities of color not have the same ability to exert control over their wards?
1: Well, one of the um, biggest tools that creates kind of this imbalance in power is what Kate touched on this um, constituent committees or zoning advisory councils. Uh, We looked at every ward in the city and found that these zoning advisory councils are really concentrated in predominantly white communities and they have tremendous power um, and power not only to determine like the zoning structure of the ward but also have the power to require developers to jump through a whole host of hoops to gain approval for developments within their wards. So these requirements Amount to um, higher financial investments for the developers that will deter them from even proposing developments in certain wards entirely. Um, And as Kate said, even when they do get the green light in in wards with ZACs, the ZACs can dictate what the housing looks like everything from unit size to pushing a developer to build condos instead of rental units. And the same power does not exist to the same degree in communities of color, so you don't see um, Zax as this kind of predominant force in communities of color as you do in white communities. And uh, kind of interestingly, um, where ZACs exist in predominantly communities of color, um, they often facilitate the development of affordable housing. So they function almost completely differently than they do in predominantly white communities. Also, we notice a glitch in this whole system of aldermanic prerogative overall uh, when it's used to create or preserve affordable housing. It's often blocked, um, sometimes by other aldermen in the city's um, administration. So. For example, there was a recent um, fight in a predominantly white community for an affordable housing development where the opposition and the support for this development were almost uh, evenly split. Um, But because the opposition group was made up of really powerful local constituents, so notably police officers and firefighters, Other aldermen and even the mayor himself circumvented aldermanic prerogative and insisted that the opposition group um, needed to be heard. So we see that when aldermanic prerogative is used to perpetuate the status quo or segregate affordable housing, um, there's no controversy. um, And no one really kind of pays attention to those decisions. uh, But when it's used to change um, the the common narrative, um, it can be blocked.
0: So interesting. So just to clarify a few terms. So aldermanic prerogative is the the term for the system that you describe in Chicago, um, where city councilmen are called aldermen. Um, And then uh, so what you're saying is that even when an alderman says, yes, this affordable housing development could come into our community, that if there's a powerful opposition group, they can pull in aldermen or power players from elsewhere to block it. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, and a couple other terms, I know that um, some acronyms that are common here, are the ZACs that you talk about. So those are zoning advisory committees or councils, councils. right? Councils. Mm-hmm. Councils. Um, so those are the local groups. And then also NIMBY, which is a, a term that comes up, which is not in my backyard. So people are probably familiar with that, but um, it gets shortened to NIMBY, the desire to keep keep folks out of your backyard or certain projects. We've had a couple other people join and say hello. I want to say hello to LaToya. Uh, LaToya says she's at the University of Richmond and serves on the City Planning Committee. So we are very happy to have you tuning in um, and also want to welcome Vicki in Wisconsin. Thanks for dialing in. Um, so Kate, I want to turn to you now with kind of a, a more philosophical question, I guess. So a lot of the work that we do, we're very focused on um, as advocates getting input from communities. We would love to see our communities be more involved in uh, local government, in decision-making. Interestingly here, though, it's it's communities that are acting in their self-interest that are actually harming the rest of the city. So are these sort of like two sides of the same coin, or are these such different dynamics
2: that we're talking about that that they're not com- comparable? What we're talking about is one constituency, white people, having access to power and using that to advance their own bias and racial discrimination against protected classes. And so it's not the type of community engagement, we would want for a great society. This is where only predominantly white voices are being heard and what they are taking, what they are raising, um, however racist, is being honored, and that housing is being blocked. And as Trish alluded to earlier, we see in other communities we, um, that are gentrifying, for example where long-term predominantly minority residents are trying to preserve some affordability in their communities as they gentrify and are trying to use their community engagement and their power to influence their aldermen to work with that alderman to preserve some level of affordability. At that point, we see that it's not true community engagement because that aldermatic prerogative that's being pushed by that predominantly minority community is not being recognized or honored. So it's only really working in one direction, to block affordable housing. And we believe the recommendations that we are advancing and that we've seen others advance around the country when they've faced similar issues are not, to remove all levels of community engagement, but to make it objective, fair, and open for everyone, not just for powerful white constituents. Thank you, Kate.
0: Um, And I do, we will get to these, um, to your recommendations shortly. I really want to talk about those. In the meantime, though, we've had a question come in from Christy in Richmond, Virginia. Um, Christy notes, even though Virginia is a Dillon rule state, Um, we see the same type of downzoning or exclusionary zoning in many of our suburban counties and the resulting segregation and scarcity of affordable housing. We also see very high market rate residential rents. Is there any support for the theory that downzoning increases rent for market rate multifamily rental units by decreasing the land available for this market rate multifamily rental? Um, I see you both nodding. Kate, you're nodding a little more vigorously. I'll let you take it.
2: So we worked, I think that's a fantastic uh, point. Um, that there's there's a broader harm created by uh, a city's downzoning practices, um, that it's actually driving up the market rents uh, in the area. And we worked with a set of researchers who looked at that and, and found sort of a similar outcome within the city of Chicago. Uh, Lincoln Park, for example, is a, a predominantly white, uh, very affluent uh, community on the north side of the city of Chicago. And they they um, probably the highest use of downzoning has occurred within Lincoln Park itself. Uh, relatedly, then the rents have gone up. It is a community that was historically, you know, 23 years ago, uh, very affordable for families. Um, but it is now one of the most expensive areas of the city to live in.
0: Thank you. Patricia, did you have anything you wanted to add to that?
2: Just that, I mean, this literally shapes
1: the city. Um, You know, the use of downzoning, it has this, again, this reverberating impact throughout the city. And I think um, it's perpetuated this idea that there are areas of the city that are for the rich and there's areas of the city that are for the poor and that's just how it's always been. Um, When that's really not the case, there have been these um, system-wide forces that have... um, changed communities uh, like Lincoln Park that have been once affordable and now they're, I mean, they're extremely exclusive and it's very um, difficult for any moderate or low income person to access these communities and we keep, uh, we'll have smaller and smaller swaths of the city that are going to be open and available uh, to low income households unless we kind of change this underlying structure that allows for uh, ward level decision making uh, to determine and chip away at affordability uh, within the community.
0: Well, thank you. And Christy, thank you for that great question. I'll remind you, you can also submit your questions to us or let us know what you see in your communities. Um, use the live chat on YouTube or email me at Amanda Moore M-O-O-R-E, at povertylaw.org. Um, let's turn to those recommendations that you have. Um, they're spelled out in your clearinghouse article. Um, Let's talk about a few of those in turn. These are recommendations you have that could help break up some of these destructive local power dynamics. Um, Patricia, I'll start with you. One of the recommendations is that cities should have a citywide comprehensive plan. What would that do?
1: So we know that today, Aldermanic Prerogative completely stymies the ability to provide for affordable housing at the scale that's needed across the city. And we know that this hurts all of us. Um, We look at, you know, who benefits and who's Burden, and it's clear that certain aldermen, in an effort to preserve their seats, are not taking on their fair share of affordable housing, and it's really harming low income and predominantly communities of color throughout the city. So, if we want a city for all, um, a city that we can all call home regardless of income, then we need to really take a a hard look at this issue, um, or we're just going to continue to lose opportunities to preserve and create affordable housing. And really, a first step in doing that is to work towards. One comprehensive strategy or one comprehensive plan for the city uh, to provide for affordable housing throughout the city instead of allowing these kind of ward by ward um, decisions to that are often rooted, you know, in an exclusionary desire to determine what communities look like uh, to determine where affordable housing is built. And an important part of a comprehensive plan is that this is really a long term or a long range plan that looks not just at affordable housing. But it connects the dots between um, residential, commercial, transportation, parks, and open space. And it looks at what each community kind of needs and what should be prioritized within each community to build greater um, equity across all communities. Thank
0: you, Patricia. Um, Another recommendation from your article is that cities require a racial equity impact assessment. Um, As part of their planning and housing decision making, um, it puts me in mind of an environmental justice circle, an important thing is the environmental impact statement. Um, So, Kate, can you tell us what a racial equity impact assessment is?
2: You're absolutely right. It is similar to an environmental impact statement. So it would require the city of Chicago and other jurisdictions to do a systemic investigation of the racial impact of any proposed decision that they make. And there are some great models out there. Uh, King County in Washington has had this in place for some time. Um, It's undergirded by actual data that they collected looking at racial disparities and other protected class disparities around a range of issues, not just housing, but we're talking education, health, disparities, access to public space, disparities, access to food. And that is to be a great city, uh, Chicago and any city, uh, we need to be making racial impact uh, statements and assessments a part of all Of our decision-making.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, Patricia, back to you. There were some other structural changes that you recommend. Can you tell us about what some of those were?
1: Yeah, I think at really the most basic level is um, taking away that absolute veto power that aldermen have. Um, So when there's a, a Development proposal, you know, the zoning advisory councils and the aldermen cannot have that absolute veto power. So, one kind of simple step would be to remove the um, letter of aldermanic support um, from that process, which is a huge hurdle for developers. And really, it's kind of the first thing in their checklist that they have to attend to um, before moving forward with any proposal. So, really, like removing some of those. Um, structural issues, I think, would make a big difference, and it's a relatively easy kind of first step.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, We are nearing the end of our time, so I want to remind our viewers once more um, to let us hear from you with your questions before we have to wrap up, um, or your observations from where you are. Also, Natalie has joined us from um, South Coast Fair Housing, Inc., which serves southeastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So thank you for joining, Natalie. Kate, I have another you're getting all these big picture questions. Um, I have another one for you. Why would cities ever adopt these changes? Um, what What are the leverage points that advocates could press if they're they're pushing for these sorts of big structural changes within how cities operate?
2: Yeah, I mean, first, uh, I'll put on my litigation hat. There is real liability for local governments who have the type of policies and practices that the city of Chicago has. Uh, there was a FHEO, Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity Administrative Complaint, um, filed against Baltimore County, where they had a letter of council support requirement. So, in order to build and get financing for affordable housing within the district, of a local council member, you had to first have their letter of support. That was challenged and that provision was removed. Uh, There are other examples of that. Um, We know from fair housing case law that even if you are, as the local council member, neutral, not advancing um, your own personal racial bias as part of decision making, but you are taking up the racial bias and discrimination of your constituents and you are carrying forward their interests, that can constitute discrimination under the Federal Fair Housing Act. So local governments need to be aware of their exposure as it relates to those laws. But on a broader level, I I think it really goes back to what Trish is talking about, um, that this is depriving local governments of being great and inclusive communities, that Chicago and other local jurisdictions will look fundamentally different in a decade or even less for Chicago, quite frankly, given the dramatic loss of our Black community. If we don't take steps to be an inclusive, transparent community guided by racial equity, that we're looking at the broader vision of what everyone needs, not just what what all white, powerful constituents want.
0: Thank you. It's an excellent summary of it. Um, Can you uh, tell us, are there any specific steps going on right now in Chicago to change the aldermanic prerogative dominance that you can talk about? Yeah, about that.
2: (laughs) Trish, do you want to
1: take that one? Well, I mean, I can touch on a a piece of it. I know recently there has been some traction among aldermen on the North and Northwest side, which is kind of the um, predominantly um, white wards of Chicago to challenge this narrative and challenge the status quo and stand up and say, you know, we have historically failed to take on our fair share of affordable housing. We have been kind of the primary actors in perpetuating segregation and we're going to take a stand and, um, work to accept uh, our fair share of affordable housing because we know it's what's right for the city. Um, So that was a a letter that was put out by, I think it was seven aldermen, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And and that was, you know, the result of of advocacy efforts um, from affordable housing advocates on the ground here as well. But I think that statement alone is, um, it's a step in the right direction. It's something that, you know, I personally haven't seen before, um, but I think, you know, using that momentum that's being built up there, we can see um, some actions that will follow these um, positive words that we think, you know, would be a step in the right direction.
0: Excellent. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining me today, and thank all of our viewers. I will remind you that you can read more about this in Kate and Patricia's article. It's called The Color of Power, How Local Control Over the Siting of Affordable Housing Shapes America. And you can find that at povertylaw.org clearinghouse. There will also be a link to it in the follow-up email that you will receive. If you liked today's program, and find this topic interesting, join our mailing list at connect.povertylaw.org clearinghouse, so you'll be kept up to date on publications and other programs like today. I'll remind you that the Advocacy Exchange is also available as a podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And I'd like to invite you to join us for next month's advocacy exchange. We'll talk about the new clean slate law in Pennsylvania and how the left and the right and NFL players came together to pass this innovative criminal records law. My guests will be Sharon Dietrich. She's the litigation director at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, and Rebecca Vallis, the vice president of the Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center for American Progress. That will take place on Thursday, November 29th, same time as today, 1 o'clock Eastern and 10 o'clock Pacific. And the link to register for that will also be in that follow-up email that you will receive in the next few days. Um, Until then, I hope that uh, you remember that
2: you're not alone out there.
0: Thank you.